the First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome, everyone, to the Joan Hamburg Show. And think for a minute about podcasts. I think almost everyone I know has a podcast. But most of these podcasts end up, you know, nice, do it, but nowhere. Dr. Marshanker, who's a cognitive scientist has a podcast called A Slight Change of Plans, and she started this. She's the producer. She's the host. And this has become one of the hottest podcasts in the country, and people are talking about it as they should. And when I first heard one of the podcasts, I suddenly became very interested, and I wanted to find out more about Maya Shanker. And there's a lot to find out. It's really fascinating. And it all started with her as a kid and a violin. So welcome to the show. And congratulations. And a slight change of plans, which has taken the podcast world by storm. And (laughs) let's start from the beginning. You came from a you know fairly large family, and the violin ended up in your life as a young child. Yeah, the violin was such a centerpiece of my childhood. Um, my, my parents immigrated from India in, in the 70s, and my mom had brought her mother's violin with her all the way when she, when she came to this country, and she showed me the instrument when I was six years old. And I was so taken by it, Joan, that I very quickly asked my mom if she could get me a pint-sized violin of my own. And that began, um, you know, what I believe would, would become my career. You know, when I was nine years old, I auditioned for the Juilliard School of Music in New York and was very fortunately accepted and would travel from Connecticut to New York every weekend. And then when I was in high school, Itzhak Perlman asked me to be his private violin student. And I think that was really the vote of confidence I needed to think, okay, I think I've got this. I think I can actually uh, potentially become pro. And then, but but tell the story, Maya. (laughs) Well, but everything happens. But tell the story about your mom. You know, which made me laugh because my mom was (laughs) like that. But you you definitely had talent. But your mom took it a step further. You were in the city, I think, and she said, "Let's stop at Juilliard." Yeah. Oh my gosh, this is this is a fantastic story uh, because it shows how bold my mom is. But uh, basically, you know, I was I was a, a little kid with big dreams, and my mom was not very connected with the the Western classical music scene. You know, my dad's a physics professor. My mom studies physics. Like, I come from a family of scientists, and. But she knew that I, I really wanted to, to see where my potential could be. And so we were in New York City just walking uh, by the Juilliard School building. And my mom said, why don't we just go in? I'm like, what do you mean just go in? She goes, 
what's the worst thing that can happen, Maya? You have your violin with you. Let's just go into the building. I'm like, well, I can think of a few things uh, like security guards <laughs> escorting us out of the premises because <laughs> we have not been given a formal invitation to be here. Um, but anyway, she just said, let's, let's just go in. And so we, um, we, we walk into the building and my mom uh, strikes up a conversation with a fellow student and her mom in the elevator and says, hey, you know, my daughter, Maya, she loves the violin. It's possible, do you think, after your lesson with your teacher, she could just meet him briefly um, and say a quick hello, maybe play a piece. And they were so generous and so kind and were absolutely willing um, to let us do this. And so I auditioned for him on the spot. He accepted me um, as a summer student and gave me this incredible boot camp that summer that ultimately, I think, got me into good enough shape to, to pass the Juilliard audition in the fall. Um, but what so was really interesting... Maya, was that you as a kid, I mean, I probably would have been so angry at my mother or if I had done that with my kid, one of my kids, they would have rolled their eyes and I'm not doing it. But you actually accepted the challenge, young as you were, and that was, of course, the beginning of life-changing because through them, Juilliard, you performed in front of the great violinist Itzhak Perlman, and there was another major life-changing happening. Yeah, I, like I was saying before, when when Perlman took me on as his private violin student, that was that was a crystallizing moment for me. That you know, you can love something, but you don't always know if you're going to be good enough to to actually make this your career. And so I remember that moment so well, and thinking, wow, I you know, I I'm going to be a violinist. Like that's going to be my foundational identity. And then I was at the, the Perlman music program. He and his wife uh, run a summer music program. And it that was, was early... the Shelter Island. Exactly. It was, it was on Shelter Island uh, in New yeah, York. We go to and... those concerts. Oh, you do? That's so fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's a beautiful place to have a summer camp. Oh my gosh. Um, but you know, I was that impatient teenager woke up early in the morning it was cold i don't think i did my warm-ups or my stretching who knows um but i i overstretched my finger on a single note and i and i heard a popping sound um and i think initially i was kind of in denial about it as as any ambitious teenager might be and i worked through the pain and i i tried to continue to play concerts and ultimately uh doctors told me that i could never play the violin again which is what your whole young life had been all about. Absolutely. I mean, to this day, Joan, you can see remnants of my former life as a violinist. My my right shoulder is it's harder for radio, but my right shoulder is slightly <laughs> elevated compared to my left because of all the hours I spent bowing and my mm -hmm. spine is slightly curved. Um, you know, my my little body literally grew around the ergonomics of the instrument. It is a... It was a, such a formative part of my existence that there is evidence of it in my body today. And, I, you know, I think, I think when I lost the violin, that's, that's when I realized how tethered my self-identity had been to it for so long at that point. You know, I think as kids, we, we just fall in love with things and we do things, but we don't really take that step back and ask these big philosophical questions about who we are and how we relate to the things we're passionate about. But when I lost it, I just remember feeling this huge void within me. Of um, course. And, and I genuinely wasn't sure who I was without it. 
No, and everyone can understand that. But what's so amazing is the next step when you are doing something or organizing or helping your mom in the basement of your home and a book by uh, Steven Pinker called The Language Instinct became the next clue as to what was going to happen to you. Not every kid who did that was going to suddenly say, neuroscience, maybe this is where I should be. It's the end of the world from violin. Yeah, and and, and look, I don't want to make it sound like it, it happened overnight either. I mean, I was It never being, does. <laughs> I, was, I was irritable. I was despondent. I was so sad. Uh, probably not a total joy to be around from my parents' perspective that summer, but... Uh, you know, at the time, I remember I was supposed to be, this is the counterfactual world, I was supposed to be in China touring with my musical classmates, and instead I was home in Connecticut um, right. with feeling my parents sorry. helping them, feeling sorry for myself, exactly. But, you know, I was in, I was in the basement, um, and I was just kind of perusing the bookshelves, and I, I, I did see this book. It's called The Language Instinct, and I, that book really pulled the curtain back on this marvelous organ <laughs> that we all have, the human mind and the human brain. And I, I just remember reading this book and thinking, wow, if this is what is behind something like our ability to, the, the cognitive machinery that's behind our ability to speak and comprehend language, what amazing cognitive architecture is behind our ability to make complex decisions and to fall in love and to ask these big philosophical questions. I just remember that moment truly being in awe of our minds and feeling a similar kind of excitement for this whole topic as I, as I did with the violin. Um, and I, you know, I genuinely wasn't sure where it would go from there, right? I mean, I was starting truly anew and I was just on my way to college, but it just gave me you know, for those listeners who are going through a big change, I would just want to say, like, it just it was enough of a seed in that moment, right? I just a little bit of hope that there might be something that I that I was I was really fascinated by, and um, ultimately that led me to become a cognitive scientist. But th but that's what's so amazing. Y you were a college person, just even beginning. How did you understand or even put together? behavioral science and which really turned out to be a big career policy making how did you know to make a career out of it most people don't even know what those things are the truth is i didn't either and i don't i think at that point certainly when i was going to college i I wasn't even thinking about a career. I was just thinking, what do I major in? Right? I thought I was going to major in music, and so I kind of need an alternative uh, plan right now. And in some ways, like I, I think I, I took the pressure off myself to really chart out any kind of future career. Because, again, Joan, I had been charting out this elaborate musical future for so long, and then I learned in that moment that that sort of thing could change in an instant. And right. so part of my brain thought, ugh. You know, I'm just done making plans for right now. Um, but, I, but I knew that I was interested in, in cognitive science. And, you know, I will share, I'll share the story with you because you mentioned my mom's Juilliard method, if you will. But I remember in my, in my college orientation program hearing about how there was a monkey lab where they were actually getting to run these 
you know, fascinating psychology and cognitive science experiments um, with, with monkeys. And I go to the first day of that class, and the room is overflowing with interested uh, college students. I mean, I, I think there were probably 80 people in the room for mm. a class that was only going to have 14 people. Um, and I was the lowly freshman, too, Joan. Everyone else, I felt like there were so many seniors and, and, and upperclassmen. And so I decided, like my mom did, I just had to take matters into my own hands. And so I sold my soul on this application. I remember telling this professor, Laurie Santos, I will, you know, I will do the 5 a.m. shift on Saturdays in New Haven when it's freezing, and I will give you my unborn children, like anything you want, Laurie, just accept me into this class. And ultimately, she did. I was the only freshman she took in that year. Um, and it changed my life because it, 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 it led me to take an early seat of a passion and actually really lean in for the entirety of my undergrad. And then I ended up getting a PhD in, in the subject. And then to your, to your earlier question, I, I did not connect the dots. I didn't know what kind of career a person could have in, in this space. And, and here's what happened. So I was a postdoc at Stanford studying neuroscience, as you mentioned. I was in the basement of a windowless, dark MRI laboratory where I was sending in my fifth person into the MRI scanner and looking at his brain. And I remember thinking, I feel like the order of operations is wrong here. I am literally looking at this dude's amygdala, and I have not even had a conversation with him. I don't know if he has kids. I don't know what his favorite book is. I don't know what his favorite ice cream flavor is. I just knew, given my very social disposition and my curiosity about humans, that this is maybe not the right gig for me. And so I ended up calling that undergrad professor, Laurie, the one who gave me that, that chance with First the monkey break, lab. And right. I said, yeah, exactly. My first break. And I said, Laurie, um, do you know that thing I've been doing for like the last 10 years? I kind of don't want to do it anymore. I'm thinking of becoming a general management consultant. Can you help me? And she said, okay, Maya, I've invested too much into you for you to just jettison the whole field. Um, and then she shared this incredible story that she had heard about how the Obama White House and, and the rest of the federal government was working to automatically enroll low-income kids into the National School Lunch Program. Um, so basically, the, you know, the government offers this program to, to kids who can't afford lunch. And um, despite the fact they were offering the lunch program, millions of kids were still going hungry each and every day. Right. They weren't they taking it, advantage. Yeah. And, and when they did a behavioral audit of the, of the program, what they learned is that there were some really important barriers that were in the way of parents signing their kids up. There was a stigma associated with signing up your kids for a public benefits program. You know, when I was at the White House, I talked to principals who said, you know, parents will tell me like they work really hard and they don't want to depend on the government. And then um, there was also a ton of burdensome paperwork that was required for these kids, um, you know, for the application process. And so they ended up using an insight from my field, from the field of behavioral science, where they automatically enrolled all students into the program. So they changed the program from an opt-in program to an opt-out program. So now parents only had to take an affirmative step if they actively wanted to unenroll their kids from the program. And that one change led 12 and a half million more kids to eat lunch at school every day. Which is unbelievable, but you mentioned the White House. So how did you get to the White House? It wasn't like you had connections or you had <laughs> uncles who were senators. 
That's <laughs> another not. great learn from my mother story. <laughs> yes, it was. It was yet another example of me taking my mom's Juilliard method. So exactly like you said. Laurie tells me this incredible story of stuff happening in the federal government, and I have no idea where to start, right, because I have no sure. connections into the political world. I have no public policy experience, right? I'm, I'm feeling imposter syndrome to the sky and back around even, even suggesting that I should be in, in this kind of role. Um, but I end up sending a cold email, uh, the, same, the same thing my mom did, just walk into the building, you know, to send the email. And so I sent a it. cold email <laughs> to, to a White House official. Um, his name is, is Cass Sunstein, and he Did you know in, him at all, or you found his I name online? Yeah, Laurie was able to get me his email address, but I'd never met him. Um, so he's getting an email from a total stranger. And uh, I remember in that email, Joe, and I, I even I was I was hedging a lot. I said, I know I'm not cool enough to work with the likes of Obama, but if there is a state or local government opportunity to do this kind of work, to be a practitioner of behavioral science, please let me know. And fortunately for me, he ignored all the insecurities that were seeping out of this email, and he um, wrote back right away and said, here's the email address for President Obama's science advisor and his deputy. Have at it. Let them know I passed you along. And two days later, I'm interviewing with White House officials trying to convince mm. them that they should hire me and they should create a new role for a behavioral scientist because, you know, the role didn't even exist. I wasn't. Right. Who even wasn't knew as the public that they had a behavioral science group? They didn't. <laughs> I think that was both, that was the biggest. Well, yeah, that was the biggest hill to fight. There was no job that I was applying for. There was no team that I was hoping to build. Everything was just in my imagination. And so I showed up to that interview and I said, "I'm not just pitching me. I'm pitching you on the idea of creating a dedicated role for a behavioral scientist um, in this office, a new role." And then, um, you know, I, I did my best and. Uh, I, I remember even before I got a formal job offer, I ended my, my lease in California in my apartment and signed a one-year lease in D.C. and just kind of showed up on their doorstep and was like, y'all need Unreal. to make this work for me. <laughs> Unreal. And you became the first behavioral science advisor of the U.N. Mm -hmm. in addition to everything, senior advisor at the White House Office of Science and Technology. And lots of other things. Now, you're, are you still Google's senior director of behavioral economics? I am, yeah. It's been a busy time, Joan, a busy time. Yeah, well, it sounds good. So let's go back to when I first met you inadvertently. You didn't know that. Through your <laughs> podcast. How, what happened? Oh, yeah, wow. Okay, so a slight change of plans um, was an idea that originated literally in my closet during quarantine, which is where my studio is set up. Um, mm -hmm. But I was I was feeling really overwhelmed, like so many people in this world, by the change that was happening in in around us in the world that was happening in my personal life. My husband and I were navigating loss. We had just um, ha had a miscarriage uh, with our, our beloved surrogate. And so we had just lost, um, you know, our, our dreams of becoming parents. And I, I just didn't know how to process all of this right, change all that this was happening. Bad stuff. Yeah, and, and feeling just discombobulated by the novelty of it all, right? Like everything just felt new and uncharted and chartered. And I, and I just felt like, I don't know how to meet this moment. And then what I did is, is I actually put on my behavioral science hat and I thought to myself, okay, 
take a moment, take a breath. What you do know is that while the specifics of the current moment do feel very overwhelming uh, for so many reasons, uh, COVID and otherwise, um, change is not a new phenomenon for human beings, right? We've done this rodeo before. We know that change is embedded in the fabric of what it means to live and how it, what it means to move about in this world. And so if you can look to your past, Maya, like I was asking myself this and, and how you've navigated change, but also if you can look to other people's stories that might not look exactly like yours, um, but who have navigated profound changes in their lives and try to mine those stories for insight, uh, you could potentially learn a ton. And, and so this, this show, A Slight Change of Plans, came from a very personal desire for me to crack the nut on change. And it ended up evolving into this amazing thing that I just could never have anticipated. I mean, as you were saying, like, everyone's got a podcast, it feels like. And I thought I was just going to be one of those people that had a podcast. And I just never would have anticipated how much it would resonate with people from all over the world. I mean, I get letters, heartfelt letters from people every single day um, who are telling me about their own change of plans um, and what this show has meant to them. And then, um, you know, at the end of last year, Apple awarded the show the best show of the year. And I think that no, was a it's, testament it's to exciting. the fact that change is, change is so universal, you know? It is. And not everyone time. has Tiffany Haddish and Clinton and all, and a lot of goodies as well as whatever. And now tell me, did I read that it's going to be, or maybe is, a docu-series yeah, there's a production company called The Cinemart that is interested in adapting this into a television show, which is totally new Good for territory you. for so. me as well. Um, but, so we'll see, we'll see what happens there. But I, I think what's been so amazing to me about this show is that it almost doesn't matter how unusual the circumstances are of the person that we're hearing. There's resonance in those stories. So you know, you hear from Tiffany Haddish, you hear from Hillary Clinton, from Casey Musgraves, from Michael Pollan about psychedelics, and, and you hear from just ordinary people, like my husband's colleague who was a total health nut and then got a stage four bone cancer diagnosis in the middle of uh, quarantine and is having to navigate a cancer diagnosis and a amputation of his right leg. And mm. it, it's almost like when you, if you were to use one of those, you know, technological systems where you... Uh, anonymize people and you can't tell who's a celebrity and you can't tell who's a normal person, um, you would never know because the stories just feel so human. Um, and, and they help us understand how we respond to change and problem solve during change and grieve during change. And, and the lessons truly feel universal. Right. And to be able to come out on the other side, Dr. Maya Shanker, a slight change of plans. And Maya, tell the audience how they can get involved with the podcast. Yes. Okay. So uh, you can find A Slight Change of Plans anywhere you find your podcast. So it's available on Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, everywhere. Um, and you can also follow me on Instagram at Dr. Maya Shankar. So uh, M-A-Y-A-S-H-A-N-K-A-R, uh, Dr. Maya Shankar. And I'm pretty active and try to give a little bit of a behind-the-scenes glimpse into uh, making this show. Congratulations. You've done a great service and it sounds like you're having a wonderful time. All the best to you and your family. I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much, Joan, for having me. It was a pleasure to talk with you. A pleasure. I'm Joan Hamburg and you're listening to WABC. More to come.
This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 